0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, you guys there? Oh. Um, just a couple of things before we do the questions. The uh, one of the most beautiful. That, that's why I sort of got. I I paused at the end and just trying to remember. It's it's not part of surah Sajda. But inshallah, I'll I'll remember. Um, one of the most beautiful things is Allah I believe in Surah Maryam says that those who seek Allah, Allah creates Allah receives them with wood wood means love Um again unfortunately in modern islam at least in among the 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 most um the the, the forces that emerged in the post colonial era from the 1930s onwards especially in 1960s onwards there was a, a systematic devaluation of the role of love in Islamic theology, between Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and uh, and those who seek Allah, in the Islamic tradition, if you try to write a doctoral dissertation, there are actually a few. There, there is a book that came out about um, love in the Hanbali school of thought it's very interesting because it looked at Hanbali scholars and what they say about love uh, there was um, a, a couple of other books published in english about the th- the theme of love in the islamic tradition if you try to to read everything that the our ancestors wrote about love and Islam, it's very, it would be a challenge. I mean, it's very difficult to manage to read everything because of just how much there is. And if you compare it to the Western tradition, remarkably, the Islamic tradition produced far more treatises and texts and studies on um, love. In, in its variety of forms, especially divine love. And it's um, it's been ripped out of our tradition for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into now, but it's been ripped out of our tradition. And that's a, that's a rather sad thing. Um, but you can't... It, it would be difficult to understand surat as-sajda without that essential component... That when you when you get to a point of tajafi al-madaja, or the you you restlessness in sleep, uh, you get to a point where you you dream about your relationship with the divine. You dream, and, you know, it it plagues your dreams, and you wake up. You know, there is an in a very well known poem called Al Atlal um, that talks about a lover and it says, um, that A person you know who is in love and they they fall asleep and when they fall asleep they remember their love so they wake up and every time their wound heals memory opens up and you won't you can take that image and graft it onto that the developing of your relationship with Allah and where Allah speaks to you through to the heart not through the Samah, not through the basar, but to the heart um, because often a lot of people say, well, if there are so many hardships, so many tests, so many trials, so many tribulations, then why? Then uh, w- w- what's the point of this? And you tell them, perhaps something that they can't understand, the point of this is love. I'm in love. The point is that because I'm in love, there is no other choice um, and I'm in love with the constant maker of beauty the the ultimate source of beauty and in loving the ultimate source of beauty I become beautiful I see myself as beautiful and I replicate beauty wherever I can and wherever I am. If you see someone who produces ugliness, regardless of how much they pray or how much they fast or how much they, they, they do the affectations of piety, it is impossible, impossible, impossible to be close to God and the beauty of God and the outcome is to be an angry, vengeful, hateful human being. That's impossible. For those who walked the path and had the experience, they will all testify that when the union happens when you finally the veils are lifted and you see a glimpse of your beloved the nature of reality changes and transforms and it is not an exaggeration to say that surat is sajda is one of the most powerful vehicles that is available to you to achieve that. Oh, the other point before I forget, Sharif had. Um, I I told Sharif to 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 make the point himself, but he wrote on his phone because that's the way he talks to me. Is that he writes on his phone? Uh, he wrote on his phone. No, I I will not make the point myself because after this halakha I feel like a kafir that was not my intention I didn't want him to make, make him feel like a kafir but so the point he made uh, after Surat Ar-Rahman and as you guys know Surah Ar-Rahman is, is Sharif's obsession he's been obsessed with Surat Ar-Rahman for many years um, and he actually wanted another halakha in Surah Ar-Rahman but uh, you know Anyway, so he that that remember I made the point that the that the constant music of Surah Al Rahman always ends with an and to fa uh, bi uh, and I made the point that that sound in the world of music. Is a comforting sound. And Sharif, um, and I'm not going to make the point as well as he made it, because it says, um, is that this is, it's, it, um, it reminds you of the sound that a baby hears in the womb, the sound of the heartbeat from the womb. Which rhythmically is very close to Surah ar Rahman. Is that a fair presentation of your point? Okay. I think you said it better. So it has an an innate relation to us in 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 the type of comfort it brings as we remember ar Rahman. Um, okay okay. Do you put on your
1: okay the first question is the first question is the Professor mentioned the six days refer to six states, and wondering what are these six states.
0: Um, the commentators, the commentators would. Emphasize, uh, like for instance, Tafsir al Razi, Ahwalun Sitta, but they weren't, they did not know what these six stages are or six states are. Um, the point I was making is that it, it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to emphasize it too much, but it is rather interesting. That those who the, the, the form of the creation of, of uh, living matter through uh, the, uh, the Big Bang theory and what follows after the Big Bang theory and the expansion of the universe um, talk about six main stages for creation. And of course, that insight comes from outside of Islam and it comes much later than the Mufassirun spoke about. Um, and and if you want to, a good summary of that, watch that video, uh, There Is No Conflict. Just type in There Is No Conflict and there will be a whole bunch of videos by this group and one of them talks about the uh, six stages of creation and so on. But anyway, the reason that they said tâni that there are six stages rather than days, is and it's I mean if you best pre- represented I think by Razi and also al mataridi does a really an amazing job explaining it, is that he said they, they basically go back to do days mean anything outside the realm of the earth and you reading the quran comprehensively and what the and and also some hadith but basically that once you get beyond the evolution of, of the the revolution of of sun and moon and earth and the alternating between night and day a day has no meaning there is no day and they had the, the insight and probity basically to say well if you look at the entire tradition and everything that the prophet ﷺ said as well as what the Quran says about the days of God The Qur'an consistently uses the word ayam as beyond, when it talks about beyond earth, as a state, a condition, not as a day. And there's also in Arabic usage itself. Ayam doesn't necessarily have to mean days. It could mean days or it could mean um, conditions. So if you say ayam Muhammad, it means Muhammad's condition, or the conditions that sur- surround, circumstances that surrounds Muhammad, not the ac- actual days. So that's the, the origin or the basis for saying that there are st- six stages. Uh, because a day is not a day. There is no day beyond Earth. Beyond Earth, the very idea of time changes completely. And they read the Quran closely enough to notice that the Quran doesn't even recognize in its speech patterns future, present, and past when it talks about time as perceived by God. And that's a very different, that's a very big point. I mean, there's a lot we can say that. That the the linear progression of time. When Allah speaks about time as perceived by God, time is no longer linear. And so, often the Qur'an will talk about something that happened in the past, in the present form. Or will talk about something that will happen in the future, in the past form. Um but but that takes us to a much larger point and a a, a remarkably subtle and rich and sophisticated discourse
1: okay um question for the sheikh i cannot thank you enough for this soul shaking halakha is there a way to recognize when one is being tested by Allah via tragedy, pain, suffering, and difficulties rather than one, when one is being punished by Allah?
0: Okay, your hearing, your sama, and your basar, and your, uh, your, empirical, your empiricism will never be able to differentiate between the two. These are faculties that are often stumped. They're often very confused when it comes to understanding the divine will. In terms of personal unfolding of events in your own life, and your sole real mechanism is your Fuad, is your heart. There is a practical guide that I can give you. Every time a tragedy befalls me, and alhamdulillah my life has been full of tragedies, the first thing I do is I reflect upon my past. The first thing I do, I say, okay, warning, the alarms go off. What of my conduct needs reform? What of my past needs cleansing? I always make that assumption to start with. And I take a full serious accounting with brutal honesty. Underscore brutal honesty. What I've done and what I've said. And even, even if I gave a halakha. Did I have the proper motives? Were my motives purely to serve Allah? Or did I have some other motives? And then I go into sujood, into salah, and zikr, asking Allah for what I believe to be sin, or things that need that were wrong or things that need to be fixed. In that state, your fuad, your heart, if you're sincere, and Allah knows you're sincere, you will get a fatah. you will get a hat plural. You will start seeing whether in fact this is to expatriate for sins, Allah is cleaning you, and if Allah cares about you, Allah wants you to pay for your sins here, not in the hereafter. Or, Allah wants you to draw nearer. And they're not mutually exclusive, by the way. So, there are many times where because of tribulations and all types of problems I've worshipped more, I've spent more time in I've spent more time in Ibadah where I've strived harder so it becomes a a dual thing where presumptively I say it's because of my sins, but practically I draw closer to Allah. Now eventually, eventually, my Fuad, my heart, knows or is at peace with what I believe were sins that called upon me what I deserve and what are Things are, are, I'm at peace with. The thing is, the most transparent human beings and the most at peace are those who clean things, clean out things. Uh, they don't wait until the, 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 um, the infection festers and spreads they don't wait until their sins accumulate, until they are a bundle of contradictions and complexities and inconsistencies until they no longer even understand themselves. Because things have just accumulated and become so complicated. They clean, you know, it's the clean house, first by first. And the 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 peace that comes from that is that you've confronted everything in your own life and you've held yourself to account before Allah holds you to account and that your heart reaches a point where you know when Allah is calling upon you um so my advice is always presumptively Say, okay, what what have I done to deserve this? But don't flagellate yourself. That's not the point. The point is to clean. It's to to hold yourself accountable and to know that Allah is most forgiving and to give people their due. So, you know, if you go back and you realize you weren't fair with your brother and sister or you took someone's property or you... You know what, you, give people their due. Don't think that there's forgiveness when you haven't given people their due. Forgiveness, when it comes to the rights of other human beings, is often contingent on what these human beings will forgive or not forgive. Give people their due, then you can expect true peace. And you can expect Allah to fill your life with that love that I talk about. Um, You know, so many people, I've said this in in many other situations, but it is so true. Um, You know, I learned it many, many years ago, and then life has just proven it to be true beyond. So many people say they love they love someone else, they love their their husband, they love their wife, they love their siblings, they love, the, who, you know, whoever they love. But in reality, they are really in love with themselves. They 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 don't know the other. They don't know the other. They create an image of the other that they project, and then they fall in love with that projected image because it satisfies their ego. So in reality, they don't even know what love is. Same thing with Allah. Your ego will try to construct an image of Allah and project it that ultimately is idolatry. And ultimately just... uh, uh, You know, God is there to rubber stamp whatever you want and to tell you you're wonderful and you're great. And so you don't really love God; you love yourself. But when you hold your ego to to scrutiny and you put it on trial, and you say, "Allah, I seek not to fall in love with." the way I've constructed you, but with who you are, please take down the veils and speak to me. Allah will. I mean, that I can give you as a promise. It is the veils, the ego, that will often be what obstructs your path. Um, Humility is beautiful because humility Humility with other human beings makes other human beings love you. And humility with God makes God love you. And humility with the universe makes the universe love you. And humility with nature makes nature love you. For God's sake, even humility with my dogs makes my dogs love me. Humility. Humility with everything. Put your ego in its place.
1: thank you um, i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing this right is wood, then a unique type of love for the divine or just another form of love like ishq or hub
0: yeah. yeah that's a good question one of the allah's names is al-wadud and ishq could be mindless love it could be destructive love <laughs> Eshke's is uh, could be very beautiful but could be a disaster hub is love but without necessarily the, in, the intu, intim, intimation of intimate familiarity. So when you say, shay, it means you could love it, but you don't really know it. The, the barriers between you and the beloved have not been necessarily removed. Wood is love with intimate familiarity. There, the barriers have been dissolved so that you know the beloved and the beloved knows you. Um. So when Allah describes, when Allah's, one of, one of Allah's is, is al-Wadood, um, the one who... When there is that love that exists, it is because there is nothing that veils us from Allah. And that is why that's one of Allah's name. And there are, there is actually um what was the name of that book? Um is it by a professor, I believe he's in um in uh, um where where is that place that I went and lectured uh do you remember when I went to lecture, um, uh, where Ivan Haddad used to teach and uh, uh, no um, the uh, the Hartford Seminary um, who's what's the name of the professor that was so nice there um, Misha, um, yeah, uh, professor Michaud Michaud I think that, yeah, Michaud, look, look up his most recent book, Professor Michaud. Um, if I remember correctly, he writes about Al-Wadud and Wood, um, unless I'm misremembering, but I believe that's that's the right book, and that's the right author. Is that it? Yeah.
1: okay Um, the task at hand the goal of being gifted yakin or certainty is daunting I feel a common line from the devil in response to this is that I am so far away it would be impossible to achieve that lofty goal in my lifetime what do you have if anything what do you have to say about this and how can we protect ourselves against defeatism
0: (laughs) Remember, defeatism is illogical. Defeatism is as illogical as suicide. Because suicide, let's assume that, okay, the hereafter is there. Let's assume that it's a, as, as I, and inshallah, you believe as well, that you know, the accountability is there, the hereafter is there and you take out you you take yourself out of the game and then you go confront you escaped one reality and you're gambling on a next reality and you really have no clue whether it's going to be 10 times worse than the reality you escaped on this earth so you know if you commit suicide and you end up in hellfire you're going to be missing your misery in earth and say, you know, where are, the good day, where, are good, where are the good old days when I used to be truly miserable on earth because I'm far more miserable in hell. So defeatism is illogical because you are placed with a sovereign. This is the, 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 the part that we often forget This world has an owner. You are owned by someone. Your money is owned by someone. Your will is truly owned by someone. That someone is God, the giver. Now, you have two choices. Either you keep striving and you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say, Allah, you know one thing. I've tried my best. You know, I... I'm a miserable failure. I didn't get very much. I prayed every prayer thinking about the football scores and basketball scores. I fasted every Ramadan, but, you know, I hated it. I never enjoyed Ramadan. I, every time I read the Quran, I would fall asleep. I would start yawning and fall asleep. I, you know, everything. Uh, But Allah... You know, I never gave up. I kept trying and failing and trying and failing. Would you rather be in that situation or someone who says, Allah, you know, it was too hard, I just gave up. I'm just taking the gamble. Now, I'll even add you another one. Would you rather be Someone who says in the final day, Allah, I've tried. Every freaking day I tried. And, you know, I was thinking of basketball scores every salah. Or someone who comes and says, smiling. Allah, it all came very easy to me. I was from the time I was a teenager. I would say Allahu Akbar and I would start praying and I would see lights and hear music and I would feel my heart jumping. I never had to work hard one day in my life. (laughs) Who would you rather be? That's the answer. I would rather, much be, I would much rather be the loser. Because if I'm betting on Allah's justice, I think the loser is going to get a far bigger reward than the one who gave up and the one who was hearing music and and seeing lights from the first time they tried. So, part of your relationship with Allah is to say, you know, I, I don't control the results. I've been given a genetic code. I've been given life experiences and circumstance. I have whatever I have, for better or for worse, and the only thing that... I know that I worship an absolutely just God. And also, I worship an absolutely merciful God. And what I will count on is the honor of effort. And believe me, that is what I'm banking on as well. Part of this is that you never reach a point where you feel that it's enough. You never reach a point where you say, okay, I'm there, alhamdulillah, I can now rest its um, effort, that is why jihad is an honor. And that is why when Allah promises, Allah promises al-Mujahidun, those who are in state of jihad, those who are constantly putting in the effort and constantly trying, um, that's far more honorable than getting it all easy.
1: Okay, Okay. Ayd Mubarak, may Allah preserve you all. Um, In Ayah 4, time for God comes up again with the stages through which Allah created the universe. (coughs) My question is specifically about when Allah says or thereafter he established himself on the throne, the term thereafter seems deliberately different and an emphasis on the passage of time? Or is this rather to be understood as thumma, thereafter, meaning subsequent, but not necessarily in time? Why does Allah use thumma?
0: Yeah, that, that's a good question. It's one that if you look at um, books of tafsir go into, go, uh, into a considerable length about summa and, stowa and that particular grammatical expression and what we take from it and what we understand from it and so on. Um, all that it connotes is that as life on this earth in relationship to the affairs of this earth, because we don't know what other lives Allah created and what other planets. We we just know about this planet. And al-Arsh means then Allah, if you will assume the mantle of management or Allah assumed the mantle of sovereignty, so that Allah was in it was by command, by the word, by what you know, whatever means that Allah uses was in the uh, creating things in the process of formation. But after that process of formation became a new stage, and that is the stage of management. Now, the reason that, that the tafasir go into a long discussions about it is because of an old theological debate as to whether if Allah is supreme and immutable and unchanging, is Allah, can Allah... Um, if you will, um, can Allah's circumstance or Allah's affairs change from one state to the other? In other words, if things, if Allah is creating one time, managing another time, doesn't that imply a change in the divine, the immutability of the divine? And how could that be? You know, there's like an old debate or the old uh, theological argument that, well, if Allah is merciful and Allah is loving and Allah is, all the asma'ullah husna, well, what was Allah's status before (coughs) creation? So, what, How could Allah be merciful or Allah be forgiving or Allah be um, whatever the different uh, or Alim, the Noor before creating the object of this mercy or the object of this forgiveness or the (laughs) object of this knowledge. And doesn't that imply a change in Allah? And if so, then how can you say that Allah is immutable and unchanging? And this point, ironically enough, was raised by the people most vulnerable to this argument that I know of, and that's Christian theologians against Islam. So Christian theologians would often say, well, Muslims... And actually, uh, Christian evangelicals uh, use that argument when they try to convert Muslims. Oh, well, you know what does it mean to say Allah is merciful when when you know before creation, there was nothing to be merciful towards, and then when now there's something to be merciful towards, does it mean that Allah your Allah your God is is changing and if uh, if your God is changing, how could you worship that God? And of course, they forget all the vulnerabilities that exist with the Trinity and the the mess that the that the Trinity raises. but anyway, I don't think that this whole debate... I know its origins comes from Greek philosophy and Greek philosophical arguments about immutability and change and perfection and lack of perfection. But these philosophical arguments have lost their... In my view, have lost their... um, Luster. Um after we learned about relativity and that in fact it takes away nothing from is he seeing Jin? Is anyone in the back? Uh the doogie is a Doogie's a jinn dog. He he sees Jinn and when he sees Jinn he starts barking at them. Um, but we just want to make sure that there are no dogs in the back, so then if he 's barking again, there's nothing we can do about that, but if there are dogs in the back, there's something we can do about that. What are you barking about what? Anyone in the back? Those so probably barking at Jen. Okay. Um, anyway, so, uh, that uh, I, I think that argument has lost us luster because it, it, it doesn't compromise God's immutability at all uh, as long as we are talking about the potentiality. In other words, God was merciful because God had the perfect potentiality towards mercy, even if there was nothing to be merciful towards. And the fact that God created, was, played the role of a creator, and then the role of a sovereign over creation, um, from, from what, however we understand stages beyond time and beyond our space, and we really can't, and, th- and that's the real challenge, It's that our entire consciousness is so wedded to our empirical physical laws that once you strip them away, then can we really talk about a, a time in a linear fashion? We, we have no experience that qualifies us to even start to conceptualize things beyond our empirical laws and that's why we are—we come to these points and we say the most we can say is that I don't know um, you, you know we we understand it to the extent we can understand it and we believe in what we are empowered to believe in as a matter of faith but precisely how what I do not accept in this argument are those who actually you know argued you read some very um, I consider it, uh, troubling things you know that um, the throne of God is carried by three angels or carried by I don't know the angel this and angel that and the throne of God has a head like this and has a wing like that and 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 you know all of all of these traditions um, are part of the mythology of the medieval mind. Um, I I just don't accept them. Um, I I think it it's exactly those who attempted to project unto God themselves and then fall in love with that projection. Uh, and that's actually what happened with Christianity. I mean, they, they they couldn't conceive of loving God without a human embodiment that suffers for their sins. And, you know, then the rough love affair was the very good-looking, white-looking, mind you, handsome, white-looking Jesus. As I said in one of my khutbahs, uh, you know, it's a, a Jesus that you have a crush on, you don't worship, you you have a crush on, because he's so good-looking, and he's white. Of course, Jesus, you know, looks like Palestinians, but they'll never have a Palestinian-looking Jesus, and who's, you know... Um, you know, the complex of the white man, uh, all dark-skinned people want to live, fall in love with white-skinned people, and that's a racial matter,
1: I just wanted to express my sincerest gratitude to you. I recently lost my son on the night of your pilot, Halakha, whom Cheyenne had graciously asked you for nasiyah on our behalf at a recent Q&A. As I try to persevere through hardship, I am now uneasy at the thought I may bring even more calamity to myself and family as I aim to draw, draw closer to God. Could you give advice on how to deal with the increasing levels of hardship as one who strives towards Yaqeen? Yeah.
0: Um, listen. لا يكلف نفسا إلا وسعها. Allah does not give someone more than it can, more than it can bear. If your intention is to draw closer to God, Allah will not give you something that breaks you. Once you are, Allah knows that you have not forsaken God. And God doesn't forsake you. And That should never, (laughs) for one thing about the loss of the child, if you, uh, I gave a khutbah where I told the story of Malik bin Dinar. Um, Actually, to be quite honest, specifically I had you in mind uh, when I gave that khutbah. Um, Malik bin Dinar, he started out his life employed as a soldier uh, uh, serving the state and as a soldier he learned he he committed a lot of injustices and soldiers in the service of the state uh, drank and he started drinking and he loved alcohol and you know probably what we would call today a, a, an alcoholic And then he married and had a daughter. And that daughter, when she was about two years old, he noticed that she didn't like him drinking. When he would start drinking, she would push the cup away or tell her father, I don't like the smell of alcohol. And he took that as a sign from Allah and then he worked towards stopping drinking or he stopped drinking altogether and started praying and so on but then his daughter got sick and died and when she died he had a complete collapse and went back stopped praying stopped practicing went back to drinking and then he had the dream that was transformative in his life in that he saw his daughter in he, he in the dream he saw the hereafter, and in the hereafter he was being chased by a snake, a monster um and there was an old man, and the old man was powerless to help him to uh, to save him from that monster that was chasing him, and he keeps running away in terror and the monster until he enters into an area. And there is his daughter. And then his daughter chases the monster away and tells him the, the what became part of memory that the demon that you saw that was chasing was the embodiment of your evil deeds. And the old man that you saw was the embodiment of your good deeds. And unfortunately, Baba... Your good deeds are very weak. He couldn't protect you from the evil deeds. And uh, Malik Dinar said that in that dream, he started thanking Allah that he took his daughter away on this earth because if it hadn't been for his daughter, she was the only source of comfort in the hereafter or in the dream of the hereafter that he experienced. This parallels a lot of what the Prophet sallallahu uh, 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 in fact says about losing children. The children that we lose on this earth, in the hereafter, those who haven't lost children are going to envy us for having lost a child. Because losing a child is a very big deal. And it puts you in a special status with Allah. With all the pain, look forward and know, and, and the driving force is that you know where your daughter is going to be. As a child, she's going to be in Jannah. And it's a very simple thing. It would, the true tragedy is that if you end up not in Jannah, because then your daughter is there and you're in a very different place and you will not be together. The driving force is you want to be together. And you know where she is and the, the whole challenge is to join her. That's what should be central in your mind. All the rest are details. Don't worry, don't, mic, don't micromanage God. One of the things that we do that is not polite with Allah is to say, Allah, you know, I'm scared of you. I don't trust you. I, you might, I think you might trick me. You might trip me up. You might... That attitude... Is an indication of being on the wrong step. The right step is Kun hasan Don billah Think well because Allah t- says I am where where a human th- believes I am. Anna in the abdi bi. So if you Think ill of Allah, then that's the treatment you get from Allah. If you think Allah, like for instance, one of the things that I've stuck in my memory is my mother, who has had her share of hardships in life. Allah knows. She would had absolute trust. You know, I remember we we were we would say things like you know. Um, Uh, We didn't have, uh, when you reached 18 years old, uh, you would lose your iqama, lose your um, residency right in Kuwait, and we couldn't go back to Egypt, and we didn't know if we were going to get a visa to the U.S., and even if we got a visa in the U.S., what happens after our visa expires and if we go back to Egypt I might end up in prison if I go back to Kuwait Kuwait will not let me in because I'm over 18 and so I would tell my mother I, you know I don't know what's going to happen to me My once I reach 18 I lose my residency in Kuwait I am no longer attached to your residence your your residency papers Uh I don't know if I'm going to get a visa to the U.S. Even if I get a visa after I finish college. You know, if I go to Egypt, I'll end up in prison and tortured. And if I go back to Kuwait, Kuwait will not let me in. And she would would always say, I have absolute trust in Allah. Allah will take care of you. Now that's real Iman. And truly, whatever came from Allah she was happy with she had worked all her life saved a lot of money to reti- retirement money put that money in a bank and it was an islamic bank this was her entire retirement bank uh, retirement fund i mean the, if uh, she didn't have um uh what do you call them when you retire Yes, yeah, so none of that existed. You know, you're not going to get a check from the government. There's no insurance. There's no social security. None of that. So the government, with its infinite wisdom, decided to s- steal all the money owned by Islamic banks. So the, the government came and confiscated all the money. Overnight. All the money she saved over 20, 30 years working in Kuwait was gone. I never forget, we, I mean, we, our knees were, were shaking. And when we saw her right after the news, she was smiling and saying, Everything that comes from Allah is beautiful. Alhamdulillah. Aren't you worried about your, in- Allah will take care of us. I have absolute trust in Allah. Allah will take care of us. That, now, that is beautiful. And that's what you should strive for. If you treat Allah with beauty, Allah treats you with beauty. I mean, I'll tell you, just a lot of doctors who are now accustomed to seeing me come in and out of hospitals, Their attitude is, oh, I'm so sorry. And then they're surprised when they they find that I hardly notice. You know, it's like, okay, we're in the hospital, wonderful. new, You know, new experience. We're out of the hospital, wonderful. Alhamdulillah, another experience. I've done more tahajjud in hospitals than anywhere else. I've turned my hospital room into a tahajjud room. And the nurses come in and you know, wants to take your pressure. I t- tell all nurses, you see me doing sujood, don't interrupt me. All the nurses know the sujood guy, you, you can't give him his shot, you can't give him his medicine, you can't g- take his blood pressure. Alhamdulillah, you know, g- turn, find, be a creator of ihsan, of beauty, wherever you are, and and remind yourself this life is. It's so temporary that before you know it, it's over. You know, I look back and I say, where, where are my, what, 57, 58 years? Where did they go? I, I don't know. They slipped right by. I mean, I, I still were, you know, the last thing I remember is my first day of going to first grade. And how anxious I was before my mother was taking me. And I still remember my mom driving me and leaving me in, 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 in my first grade class. And th- that's my memory. I should be there. Where did the, all these years go? How did this happen? That's life. That's life. How did I end up here? I don't know. Alhamdulillah. It all slipped by and the rest is going to slip by. And I have absolute trust. It's what is coming that matters. What is coming, people? That's what matters. We
1: have
0: four minutes. Uh, pray Maghreb. Oh, let's pray Maghrib. Okay. Okay. I want to, to just underscore this. Think well of Allah. Allah didn't create us to torture us. Allah didn't create us to punish us. Allah didn't create us to make us suffer. In fact, the earmark of Ar-Rahman, the merciful, the compassionate, is exactly that. Ar-Rahman, the merciful. Allah gives you what you can handle. But and the, the, the companionship that I talk about, that I, when, when the Quran talks about those people who seek Allah's companionship, the nature of this companionship is the experience of tranquility and happiness. It's not that you become miserable with this companionship. It, it, it would not make any sense If I get closer to Allah and I experience misery, it's exactly the opposite. You get closer to Allah and the overwhelming experience from that relationship of closeness is something beautiful, is unadulterated beauty.
1: So I just wanted to share um, just to comment on that you know we we've had so many tests in our lifetime and I think when when you can switch your thinking into recognizing um, that usually when something happens like this it's a huge opportunity like I look back on on our lives and or, you know for me personally certainly those moments where I experienced the most pain is where I also experienced the most growth and oftentimes you don't really realize it until you come out the other end and you look back at what you what you learned and how you advanced. And that there oftentimes was not a way to achieve that level of advancement at that speed without that experience. And when it happens time and time again, and you start recognizing that, okay, something really difficult is happening what is it that I'm supposed to learn here you know you trust that it's not going to be more that you can handle but you start thinking about okay I know that there's something to learn here and that Allah will help me through it and it's like this is one of those things again where it's like the experience sort of teaches you you know when you when you've come out the other end enough times you start saying okay I can do this I can survive it and for like the things that that we're working on now, I often times will see it as, okay, this is the way that sometimes that shaitan is coming in to prevent you from doing what you're supposed to do. Because if you're put in a really difficult situation, you have a choice is that you can direct all of your energy towards anxiety and worry and stress and things that really don't change the situation. Or you can recognize it for what it is you know, a a chance for growth, but also like, okay, I'm not going to fail this because I don't want to, I don't want to lose out on the opportunity of of fulfilling my potential. I want to still be able to move forward. And I, um, so, you know, like I, I remember the example of the professor's mother, which is that so many times she had so much hardship before her, but she always just accepted with full happiness and peace, like it it just, it was just part of what it was. And I, I, I think I learned from that just how important your attitude is about just accepting this is part of the test, it's part of the growth, and alhamdulillah, you know, and, and then nothing actually um, pushes you too far. You, you just, you know, if, if you can always accept that this is part of life, part of everything, it just gives. It actually tempers your <coughs> reaction. It gives you a lot of strength and mise and also, um, just you know, nothing should surprise you. It's like here it is. Okay, we're gonna get through it. How do we figure it out? Yeah. And then you know, it's it's so. And alhamdulillah, as long as you keep getting the tests, then you feel like okay, at least mm-hmm. God is paying attention and cares. So.
0: Well, and would you would you, I was everything that we experienced? Would you replace any of it
1: I would not replace one bit of it because if you recognize that you know who I am today is very much a product of everything that I went through and had I not gone through that hardship then I might not be as advanced as I am and you know or not or I might not be as able to handle certain things and I remember you know decade you know decade ago or whatever I mean these things you know with experience you grow so they used to really throw me off they used to get me very anxious I would always, you know, panic like I, you know, shared the story about how much money we used to spend on books, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, you know, after a while, you realize that with each one of these things, you recognize your own growth, and that is actually something that's very surprising too, because you recognize that you're developing your own strength and your own ability to um, navigate difficulty, but more importantly, you're building your trust, because every time something like this happens and you get through it. You, you strengthen your trust in Allah because you go back and you can see the divine hand in it and how God helped you through it and, and made you a better person or you know more empathetic person or you know more flexible person whatever it is and, and that's also what's unique is that you have your own unique path of learning things and it's like whatever test you're getting is unique to whatever challenge you need to overcome so you see it the more ha- it happens over time Inshallah. Okay, so I um we congratulations. We've now passed the five hour, five and a half hour mark. <laughs> we're coming upon that, so um, we all deserve a special award for that, and especially the Sheikh. <laughs> so I think we can do about two more questions, and then we can call it an evening. So, um, so the UK people can can get to bed, like before lunchtime. <laughs> okay, um, so this is a question about Surah Rahman, actually. Um, The professor spoke of dualities within human beings. He mentioned the positive and negative sides. Is this duality always between morally positive and negative? Or are there other dualities that are morally neutral? Does Allah give us a means of bringing balance to these dualities? And does the refrain, which of your Lord's bounties do you both deny, speak to how we bring balance to these inner dualities?
0: Yeah, uh, the thing is that there is so much about these, these these dualities, but both dualities are both of these sides. If you if you imagine a a, a matter and antimatter or um, a positive and the negative i mean it's subhanallah that even everything in our creation is done in in these contrasts it it's as if um that that's the the force that comes uh, that generates life itself but notice that both of them are capable of elevation and degradation. So when when in Surah Rahman it speaks to the two, it says what can you both deny? So it's not even that while one is more prone towards a certain direction and the other is prone to the opposite direction, ultimately when it addresses both of them, it says, so what of the bounties of, the, of your Lord do you both deny in recognition that you could actually, as a human being, end up with, you know, the side, put it this way, the side that all of us, um, uh, you know, I, I've, I can't speak as a woman because I've never been a woman um <laughs> unfortunately i I would have actually liked very much like the experience of of womanhood, but it's something that you know that you have a passion for learning and you just have to accept that certain things in life you just don't you're not gonna learn no matter how many books I read just yeah you know. um anyway the you have. A side that can be drawn towards tenderness and love and a side that is drawn towards relishing in violence and chaos and the, the opposite. You can degrade both sides or you can elevate both sides. Uh, that is why, for instance, among men, the reason I said uh, the comment about women is that I, I'm going to say something about men all men have the ability or the tendency to rel- to revel in patriarchy in dominance and control over the opposite sex um or to be drawn towards a no, it, 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 you know some call it the feminine side i just it's it, you drawn towards it being at peace with not exercising uh, authority and control over someone who's different the you'll find you know i often um thought about this question from the field of human trafficking why are so many men drawn to violence, especially in human trafficking, what we see is the number of men who are drawn to exercising violence over women. So, actually attracted by violence. And these are the same men who could be capable of the exact opposite. It depends on what they've nourished within themselves. All of us have that laden ability within our dualities. You could be drawn towards the utterly grotesque or drawn towards the opposite. Now, you elevate, you could elevate both so that, you know, your violence, for instance, is, um, uh it never steps into the immoral. So, you know, your your violence is wrestling with your wife, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, enjoying a playful wrestle. That's the, that's that you're an elevated person that playful wrestling satisfies that negative duality. Or alternatively, your violence is that you want to see as we've <laughs> you, you know you, you men that insult and humiliate and spit and urinate on women and, and do just horrendous awful things and that same man you, you know could be a very nice father and a very respectable uh a business person or a lawyer or a judge or whatever and the point is is yes this is the same human being capable of both sides within these dualities. But either you deprecate both or you elevate both. And the real, where wisdom comes from and where tranquility comes from is when the two achieve a level of balance a mizan between the two, that you are reconciled within the self. Um, So you're stable. You're not drawn one way by, one direction by whim or the other, you know, you don't hear about uh, one whim uh, uh, makes you uh, 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 go follow a guru that has formed a cult and give that guru all your money and the excuse is, well, I have a beautiful side that wants to do good. Or alternatively, you don't go follow you know, a bunch of uh, Satan worshippers that likes to sacrifice animals and human beings. What prevents you from going to one extreme or the other extreme is precisely that balance. But absolutely, I mean, there are people that within their dualities... Are in such a horrible place that when would they do good, it's like, well, I gave the a, a human tra- a, 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 a little girl that's been trafficked a chocolate. That's the good I do. Obviously, their duality is very deprecated. And in human trafficking, for instance, you know, you there are people who are arrested, and the people that uh, the person who's the criminal, you know, says things like. Oh, you know, I I've I swear to you, to you, I've heard this repeatedly. I treat my bitches really well. Why are you so mean to me? Because to you, they're bitches. You've deprecated both sides to the point that you think that treating your bitches really well makes you a wonderful human being. So it's, you know, and if you are in, so far in the dark, you've, you you've um drifted away from god so far um that achieving a balance you know you find the real criminals the real cool-headed criminals are so you know cold and collected and calm and 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 and, and Cunning, they've achieved a balance during their, their duality, but they achieved that balance in total darkness, completely away from God. Now, when I see someone like that, I actually often think it's so sad because that same person, if they would have achieved that balance on the light side, could have had the potential to be a saint. It's just that they've drifted away from God and achieved the balance in complete and total evil. You have to look at where you are, and a decent human being, a beautiful human being, is not kind to some and horrible to some. That is, when I see that, that is a sure sign of someone who is absolutely off balance is that they think that the fact that they are so nice to their kids somehow makes for the fact that they are absolutely evil to some other children. Um, And and it doesn't, you know, people who are trafficked are not just children, they're also adults. And you just, you see samples of what human beings are capable of and what they do, and... Um, you know, you understand why very... I once wrote an article, people didn't like it. (laughs) I, I got a lot of flack for it. About why is it that so many of my good Jewish friends who are very moral people have a complete blind spot to the suffering of Palestinians? I mean, people who are impeccably moral and champions of human rights. And then when it comes to Palestinian suffering, they just cannot see it, no matter what. They're blind. And the sad reality is is that, yes, they've achieved the balance, but they've achieved the balance in an immoral spot, in an immoral place. And they they just don't see it because they have anchored themselves in an immoral place where they've accepted oppressing other human beings because of historical claims or religious claims or uh, just cause claims or whatever claims that we come up with to deprecate and control and um, uh, um, abuse other human beings. As Israelis do, Palestinians. Okay. <laughs> you know, I also I remember during the Bosnian genocide, I had um, a Serbian uh, graduate student who was a uh, used to be a friend. And then when the whole rape camps came up, and that person that I knew as a very very nice person, I really liked him. I really liked his wife. I thought he was just a wonderful human being. And suddenly, that, that really nice, wonderful human being couldn't see the immorality in the Bosnian rape camps. Kept trying to defend what the, Bosni- what the Serbs were doing to Bosnians. as And I told him, you know, I just realized that i liked you because you are a balanced human being you're very calm you're very collected but you are an, in 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 an immoral place and as long as you are in that immoral place i'm no longer your friend and and that was the end of our friendship um but it, it's it afflicts so many people and in my view it also signifies how far away from God, you've drifted, because the closer you are to God, the more you recognize beauty as beauty, and ugliness as ugliness. The inability to see beauty for what it is, and ugliness for what it is, means that you've drifted away from God, regardless of your ibadat, regardless of your philosophy, your, your khutbah, you, you know, I've known so many imams that give the most remarkably eloquent khutbah. And the fact that I know that their wife has complained to me of, you know, this is a real lesson, an imam, someone who is actually very well known. His wife told me that he doesn't, he, he starves them. He starves her and he starves her children and when she protests he beats the heck out of her. And when he's intimate with her, he basically rapes her. And he would give the most amazing khutbas. And is it, that person is a demon, but he doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize it because he created a certain balance, but at a very immoral spot. And is comp- as far away from Allah as you can imagine. To him, to, to me, as I told him, He's more of a demon than someone who says, "I am, I don't believe in God, and and you know I'm I'm open about it." I don't, You're more dangerous. Of course, after that, <laughs> after that confrontation where I told him you're a demon and that uh, you're more dangerous, and that I, uh, uh, he, what he did is that he sent his wife and children back home. And remarried a young convert. So, in other words, he got rid of the problem by just getting rid of his family, and I don't know, whatever happened to them. But that was the end of our relationship, obviously. Uh, but that's why I'm not liked very much. I mean, I. I, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a history. The, I don't blame people. I wouldn't like me either. It's okay. Alhamdulillah
1: yeah, for that. Yeah, laugh. <laughs> okay, last question. Um, my question is not related to Surah Sajda, um, but related to several surahs in the Quran on Hajj. Um, why is it that when the Quran talks about the obligation of Hajj, it uses nas, all human beings and people, instead of Mu'minun, the believers, mm-hmm. like in other forms of obligation, like praying and fasting, where the invitation is directed to the mutminun? Um, I'm asking this, especially in the context of my reading of the Sirah in which Hajj was practiced or was fulfilled by both mutminun the believers and non-believers alike is the calling for all human beings here can this be interpreted as the possible invitation for all humans now and related to this could you talk a little bit about the ruling on visiting Mecca especially the Al Haram area as a visitor not to stay permanently but for non-Muslims
0: um. yeah you're gonna get me into trouble Uh, well, uh, here's the um, the reason that uh, you know, uh, remember that the ha- Hajj was established from the prime of the Prophet Ibrahim, or you know, Prophet Ismail more specifically, because that's when the the Kaaba and the the Mecca became known as a center for Hajj um for people of all types of religious persuasions so but so repeatedly the message of Ibrahim and Ismail and the various prophets uh that acknowledged the special place of Mecca and that's I mean we get into that, especially with the Arab prophets, uh, more than the Israelite prophets, um, that the Islamization of hajj takes place at the very last years of the prophet's life, and according to the traditions that we we have, um that the non-Muslims are given a grace period of three months after which they are no longer allowed to be in the vicinity of the Kaaba and no longer allowed to worship around the Kaaba. And I think the evidence that this ruling of the Prophet, is is very strong. I mean, the, the... there is a lot of evidence that, in fact, that's what the Prophet decided, and that's what the Prophet sallam, ruled. So, pilgrimage around the Kaaba or to the Kaaba is clearly through the prophetic precedent and a Muslim affair, and Muslim as the Muslims of the Prophet Ibrahim ﷺ and the Muslims of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Um, now, why does the Quran, you know, and, and here we'd have to talk about the specific area, Because when, for instance, it says, So, you know, call upon people, grammatically, that means the people who accept the call, and those who accept the call are the ones who accept the prophecy of the Prophet Ibrahim and the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad um, That it, it, those, that calling upon those who accept the prophecy of uh, Isa but don't accept the prophecy of Muhammad or those who accept the prophecy of Moses but don't accept the prophecy of Muhammad it would be an irrelevant call to them because their call is to Jerusalem not to the Kaaba That All of that doesn't get to the issue of visitation, that's a separate matter. And to be quite honest with you, ideally, a Khilafah should exist in the Hijaz. And the Khilafah should represent all Muslims. Not politically, but symbolically. And the Hijaz should have an autonomous status, like the people States it should be a sovereign. And as a sovereign, then it could regulate tourism without interfering with the religious rituals. I wouldn't have a problem with, but as long as it doesn't belong to the political interests of al-Saud or of some other al-whatever, or bin this or bin that, because the hijaz is a very, who really controls the Hijaz? Who's really in control of the Hijaz? Well, first it was the British, and then now it's Americans. Al-Saud are not, they, they don't have a sovereign at, uh, uh, will, and they don't really care about the Hijaz. Their real god is the United States, and before that it was the British government. That, that's who they really worship. And for them, it is uh, what happened when uh, the hijaz was stormed uh, uh, the al saud brought french paratroopers to to liberate the hijaz from uh, al otaibi and whatever his name was um and who w- who would it be that would prevent muslims from creating a sovereign hijaz it's not al saud it's the us it's the us who would by command, say you Muslims cannot create a sovereign Hijaz, you Muslims cannot have a status under international law like the papal states, you Muslims do not have the right to declare a khalifa a symbolic religious authority that would carry moral persuasion in the Hijaz. Why? Because we decide you can't. It is not, Al-Saud are just like a detail, they're a footnote. They don't control anything. Anything that happens, they go to Trump, hello, or to the American government, hello, this is what's happening, can we do it, can we not do it, they receive their marching orders and off they go. So, the sad reality is, since British colonialism, the Hijaz has been first been under British occupation, proxy power they're the ones who decided that Al-Sharif would rule Jordan but not rule Arabia (laughs) they're the ones who decided who put the Shurafa in control in Jordan and Al-Saud in control of uh, Mecca and Medina they're the ones who decided that Palestine goes to Israel and that Palestine becomes no more they're the ones who decided that Sham becomes Lebanon and Syria. They're the ones who decided that there's, Egypt is like this and Sudan is like this. They're the ones who decide. They're the ones who decided. And then after Britain was gone, it became the U.S. And if you look at the Hijaz conference of 1932, read the details. I talk about it in Reasoning with God, but I've read the entire archival material. Thousands of pages. And the archival material blows your mind. The king of Saudiya promised, and you know who was very active uh, on behalf of Muslims back then? It was India. India was objecting to Al-Saud having control of the Hijaz because of Indian Muslims. And then uh, he promised Muslims that Najd has no designs over Hijaz. And then it was the U.S. government and the American government, British diplomats who advised al-Saud, no, no, take the Hijaz. Annex the Hijaz. And that's what happened. We just don't know history. So they annexed the Hijaz. And since then, the Hijaz has become a commercial interest. For business. That's, That's why the Saudis have destroyed all the historical sites Including the houses of the Prophet, the graves of so many companions, all the historical sites are gone, lost to history forever. I mean, the most if you if you find a stone from the house of the Prophet, you would place it in the most revered place in your home and you would cry, you would sit next to it and cry night and day. Those people destroyed all this stuff and threw it in the garbage. Because al-Hijaz, Mecca and Medina became a commercial interest. I, I, I mean, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? I completely forgot. Now I'm all uh, uh, rallied hot up, and uh, up. yeah, and my hot blood pressure is going up, and and what? Where was it? Oh, oh, the, yeah, oh, visitation, yeah. So, no, you know, I would be opposed to, visit, uh, to uh, visit, uh, visitation to al-Hijaz uh, uh, under al-Saud, because al-Saud will, will turn a buck in the most immoral way. Halal bars? They're in Mecca, all over Mecca, there's halal bars. What halal bars? Have you talked to any Saudis about their halal bars? I mean, it is the most ridiculous thing. Oh, the percentage of alcohol is this way. What well, can you get drunk? Well, we get drunk all the time. We just drink enough of it when we get drunk. What halal bars right there in Mecca? And then you find all these Muslims, you know, getting all worked up about Hagia Sophia, regardless of what's right and wrong. Well, how about Al Aqsa Mosque? How about Hijaz, which is being. That when I grew up, we learned in fiqh. You mean it was an article of faith. No building should be higher than the Kaaba. That has been the jurisprudence of Muslims for the past 1400 years. Bin Salman wakes up one day and says we need hotels there that tower over Kaaba. And suddenly all the jurisprudence we've learned became cancelled. It was taken out of the curriculum of Azhar. The Azharis, the gov- by, by, because Sisi's government, of course, received marching orders from al-Saud, they took out of the curriculum that it, all the material about all the fatawa that you cannot have a building higher than the Kaaba in Mecca. I mean, God's sake. It, oh, don't get me started. Astaghfirullah <laughs> I al-Azim. Nothing, you know, two things that caused me... The the pain from from which exceed any pain of any illness that I've suffered in my own life or any personal calamity that I've suffered in my own life, including some very ugly things. The pain of what happens to Al-Aqsa Mosque and the pain of what's happening to Mecca and Medina the mosque, the mosque of the Prophet والسلام, he, You know, he, he, I can't describe to you the emotions when you walk into that mosque, the the, the 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 true divine presence, and then to have that divine presence mixed in with Holiday Inns and Sheratons and Hiltons and, and 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 you know, I've someone showed me pictures recently of. Uh, waitresses imported from eastern europe all of them look like models all of them of course are blonde and white and, and that are serving as waitresses in mecca okay how did they get how did they get into mecca and and they and why do you need waitresses that look like models to serve in food and drink in mecca And then people come and talk to me about, you know, the most pedantic. No, let's, let's worry about what, the things that really matter, like Al Aqsa Mosque and Al and, and Hijaz. Because I, you know, I can't speak for Allah, so of course, subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I often wonder, often puzzled by how merciful and how patient and how indulgent God is. This is really heretical to say. So please forgive me. Astaghfirullah, Ya Rab. Please forgive me. But it's a good thing I am not a god. Because if I was a god, I would have lost my temper a very long time ago and destroyed everything. I mean, for God's sake, look at what you did to my holy sites. You know, I'm wiping you, all people, off the face of the earth. You know, but Allah is putting up with us and keeps putting up with us and keeps putting up with us and keeps giving us more things and more riches, more barakah. And I, I don't get it, honestly. I don't. I you know, I often just sit and I talk to Allah. I say, Allah, I, I just you know, please give me the wisdom to understand Your patience, to, to, because Allah gave us oil after World War Two. With that oil, we could have reclaimed the Islamic civilization in a way that exceeds the achievements of the Abbasid civilization. Instead, we took all the money from this oil and spent it on nightclubs and alcohol and prostitutes in London and Paris. and I don't know. You, I mean, if someone can... Can can calm me down about this? Please feel free. I, you know, th- yeah. You can tell that this is. You know, th- 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 it's very dangerous to approach the issue of Mecca and Medina with me because it really hurts. And having, I mean, every visit, I see. First time I visited, I forgot. My Allah is my witness. I visited. I saw with my own two eyes, and and actually walked with my own two feet. A a place dug where the companions of the Prophet ﷺ used to swim. They would fill it with water on hot days and sit to cool down. And I, Allah is my witness. When I walk there, the perfume, this, the, smell, you know, the desert is right there and two steps and you smell something blessed that, would, that made your entire body melt. The next visit, 10 years later, it was gone. The the site disappeared. And then, you know, now, uh, of course, they give me, I I get sent regular lists of the new, what other places have been destroyed. And I can't tell you the number of nights I've cried. I spent a good part of the night crying. Because in you structure that belonged to the companions or the Ali al-Bayt has been destroyed. For what? For the Hilton and for the Sheraton? Oh my Lord! And then Allah is still patient with us. I, I don't know. And if we do this to our sites, then the Israelis say well, why should we respect, respect the, the Aqsa Mosque? I mean if if this, you hear people of authority and, and influence in the Saudi government, say, oh, what is so special about the Aqsa Mosque? The Aqsa Mosque is, is not really that important for Muslims. I, my book, that's a disqualifier. That's enough to say, okay, you are no longer qualified to be the caretaker of the two holy shrines. But we just keep going like nothing. Like, you know, and, and then we say, why is Allah not answering our prayers? I think I'm going to need to pray long and hard tonight.
1: <laughs> i have two words. Thanks, Zezin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, of course, yes, it's Zezin. That has to be, yeah, it's that has to come, come up with, because he knows that this is the stuff that really, uh, oh, the tears, the tears.
1: May God forgive you, and God thank you, Zezan. It <laughs> was a very good question, but man, fired him up. Okay.
0: So- as long as we dream of it, it's a possibility. Dream of the symbolic Khilafah, uh, the Khilafah in the Hijaz, and, and you never know what history will bring. And maybe if enough of us passionately pray for it, maybe Allah will give it to us instead of giving us oil.
1: So you did kind of answer the question about the symbolic caliphate.
0: Then. Yeah, I have, I have much more to say about it. To, but, to yeah. be
1: continued. <laughs> okay, so we did it. We've crossed the six-hour mark. Thank you so much. May, may God bless all of
0: you. May Allah truly reward you and make it in mizan. Marab. The, the, I, you, you are amazing. I can't believe that you sat there for six hours. and. <sighs> I mean uh, and and you don't even get an ijaza or a degree or a certificate or anything at the end of that so <laughs> you know Allah truly really rewarding you
1: got a lot of hasanah alhamdulillah so let me just see let me look at the comments here it says um i pray you all get to see Al-Aqsa, um, and ya rab. al aqsa um ya Shidra rab as soon as possible um Something about gold toilets for the royal family. I'm going to skip that comment. <laughs> um, you did the hard work, Professor. Time never flies so quickly as in, in these halakas. We are lucky to sit here and listen. Thank you so much for everything, Ustad. Thank you so, so much. So,
0: Alhamdulillah. May Allah bless you. Warakallah feekum. And pray that that Allah guides me about the rest of these halakas or that Allah sends more donors that make the decision easy or you know
1: inshallah. Pray, pray for us i love that actually i really like the idea about having um milestones where like for every certain number of donors yeah then we can do a yeah, that's cut. A... i think that makes a lot of sense and creates yeah. a lot of um, momentum for fundraising yeah. so that's a really good idea inshallah Okay, so um, wonderful to see all of you. Inshallah, we'll see you next week for the khutbah and then I hope you'll join me on my international tour, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. And And I I
0: just want if um, for the there is a moral bond is created between a teacher and students. So for the people who are consider some themselves regulars. If any of you want to write me, in due time, I will respond. I owe you that for the effort that you've put in. Um, the, the, th- that bond starts forming the more knowledge we share with each other, uh, because that's the, the, the greatest and the holiest bond.